Hi, I'm Lucas Kendall. I was a soundtrack CD producer for many years. I worked on the collector's edition boutique CDs of almost all of the Star Trek films and television soundtracks. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Trek Untold, Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On today's show, we're getting musical once more, but taking a look at a different part of that industry. In the past, I've had a few composers here on Trek Untold, where those music makers work on making the sounds of Star Trek. But this week's guest is a person who took that music and made it readily available for all to enjoy. And that person is Lucas Kendall. Lucas is responsible for bringing us some of the most complete Star Trek albums of all time releasing the remastered orchestral scores on outrageously comprehensive CD sets from the films and television shows. If you ever owned an album of Star Trek music, there's a good chance it was released through Lucas's label. On top of that, Lucas also founded Film Score Monthly, a publication which granted him access to a lot of major composers, much like how this show has given me a chance to chat with some folks who I otherwise would have never had a chance to speak with. So besides talking about Trek music, we're also telling tales about some of their composers and a few other folks out there in the music world who happen to have some connections to Star Trek. So get ready to deep dive into the world of Star Trek scores as we chat with Lucas Kendall. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our Teespring store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe you want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. Now joining me on the other side of the screen. I'm trying to figure out a good, like, catchy, funny way to, like, introduce a music person here, but I'm always terrible at this. So, hey, we're joined by Mr. Lucas Kendall today. Lucas, how's it going? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I like your show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, yeah, I feel bad here because, like, I'm so terrible at music stuff, so I'm going to be struggling today with some words and vocabulary and things like that. Don't worry anything about it. So when I was a kid, I was such a music fan, a film music fan, and there was this was before the Internet. So I created a newsletter that became a magazine called Film Score Monthly, and then it became a record label. So I have spent 30 to 35 years talking about this stuff. All right, good, because you're going to save my butt a lot today. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're going to totally talk about Film Score Monthly. That's on my list of things to get to. Okay. So, um, but yeah, let's just jump on in here. And uh, Lucas, you know, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? I'm pretty sure you're a fan growing up of this stuff, right? I am. I was born in 74, so in the early 80s, I, I was first into Star Wars through the toys and the radio show, if people remember that. They got into the music from the radio show and the storybooks and the comic books. And back in those days, you saw the movies last. So you tended to discover the comics and the photo novels. So I remember in third grade in silent reading, 
I would read the Star Wars novelizations. Then I moved on to the James Blish Star Trek adaptations, uh, Spock Must Die. That freaked me out about the transporter. If you think about it, that it kills you every time. Yeah, let's not get into that discussion. That's like a whole other episode. Oh my God. Oh man, no. So so anyway, so in the early 80s, I just, I I was a a nerd. Uh, This is the, the, you know, the high wedgies era. So this is before geeks were cool. This was when it was really not cool. So, uh, you know, I, my escape was science fiction and I loved, I discovered Star Trek and was watching it on channel 10, you know, every afternoon or evening or whenever they'd show it and got into the movies. The first movie I saw in a the theater, I think was Star Trek three, uh, just fond memories of, of the imagination and, uh, the whole Star Trek world and, and what, what a great thing it was to discover as a kid, a world where, where everybody was nice. I like it that you got into this basically was because a lot of the ancillary merchandise, like, you know, the audio plays and the books and things like that. Like, I got back into Star Trek because of the toys. So it's just kind of funny how that sort of thing works its way back into us. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it was a very uh, you're you're probably much younger than I am. But the early 80s and late 70s, it was uh, sort of this halcyon era for um for this nerd culture and star Wars was our universe and, and it was just so cool. And then you sort of moved on to, to close encounters and Superman and Blade Runner and comic books. And, and it was, it was big. It was the original generation of that, of that geek era for generation X. So Lucas, let's get a little bit more uh, background information about you. So we know that you were a super awesome, cool nerd growing up. Uh, in the best era of nerddom possible, at least before today's modern times. Uh, but, you know, where were you born? Who were your parents and what did they do? And what did little Lucas want to be when he grew up? Well, no, nobody cares about this. But uh, since you asked, I was born in Hanover, New Hampshire, because my dad's a doctor and he was doing a residency at the time at, at uh, Dartmouth. And then when I was three in 77, he got a job at the hospital in Martha's Vineyard. So I grew up in Martha's Vineyard. Ah, oh, okay. And I was a little... Uh, smarty pants, Jewish kid, smallest kid in the class, and and uh, I wasn't from that, from there, from that community. So it was very much felt like the outcast. Very much didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And so the science fiction and and comic books that was sort of how I found my own sense of belonging. I have a funny Martha's Vineyard Star Trek story. I'll go ahead. So um, I was reading an article in Starlog magazine, an interview with Diana Muldor where she said she spent summers on Martha's Vineyard. And I thought, wait a minute, I know a classmate at high school who has the same last name. So the next day in school, I asked her, and I was like, Darty, I saw this interview with an actress named Diana. And she was like, yeah, my aunt's on Star Trek. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was like, whoa. And uh, I, I knew the family, uh, the, that uh, offshoot of um, Muldoors and, uh, and they actually arranged for me to meet Diana Muldor, Aunt Denny, when uh, when she was on the Vineyard. This is like 1991 or 92. Wow. She had already left Star Trek, and she was either on L.A. Law or had left L.A. Law. But for me, it was like the coolest thing ever. It was like a personal audience. And it was like around the corner from my house at this That's horse amazing. farm where she was picking up another one of her nieces. Anyway, she was she was lovely. She retired there, and the family is great. And so that's that's my Martha's Vineyard Star Trek story. And uh, so what did the Lucas want to be when he grew up? I used to draw a lot. Um, I didn't know, and, I, and it's like I still don't know, but I always liked making things. I always liked creative projects. So I've, I've kind of become a filmmaker and a writer because uh, I like to produce things. I, I like to write things that uh, I can produce. I like to direct them so it comes out the way I want it. I made a, a sci-fi short film that I hope you don't mind my plugging. It's called Sky Fighter. You can find it online at Dust. So if you just type Sky Fighter two words short film into uh, YouTube or Google, the, our, it'll pop up because it got a couple million views and it did pretty well. Uh, and I'd like to make a feature film about that. I, I have a lot of things I'd like to do, but but I'm you know like I, yes, I would like to be a, I would still like to be a, a, a filmmaker when I grow. All right, very cool. And yeah, I was actually looking at your YouTube channel. In fact, and we're going to make sure we link it. Uh, in the show notes, so anybody wants to go ahead and see all the different work that Lucas is doing and some of the behind-the-scenes stuff and other films he made, uh, go ahead and check out his YouTube channel in the show notes. But uh, I was watching a video that you did on there, Lucas, which was like a little bio about yourself. Oh, and, great. Yeah, yeah, I did my research. I did some homework here, and I saw there's a photo of, I'm going to assume it's you as a child, next to George Takei. Yeah, I have more hair. 
Uh, yes, I, I, I was. I went to the creation conventions. I met George. I met Walter. I don't remember how many, they were all the same. You know, it was very disillusioned because I was looking for my people. I was like, where are my people? Because I, the kids at high school, I had some friends, but they weren't really my people. And I go to Temple and like, those actually are my people, but they didn't really feel like my people. They didn't like Star Trek. And I was pretty good at sports. I was on the baseball team, but those weren't my people. So I was like, where are my people? And then um, I thought, uh, oh my God, Star Trek conventions. Those are my people. And I went and all they cared about was all that crap they could buy in the dealer's hall. I, I liked the stories. I liked the storytelling. I liked the meaning of what it was all about. And whenever I tried to talk to somebody, it was just like trivia. It was just these very superficial details. And I thought creation set their conventions up to kind of, um, uh, it's like Charlie Brown talking about Christmas being too commercial, I guess. <laughs> but boy, those guys would sell anything. Those guys would sell a kidney stone. I mean, to be fair, I would buy James Dewan's kidney stone. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing to have. <laughs> I don't know. Those guys have had just the, so anyway, I have a picture of me with George Takei and that was right after Star Trek five. And there was a, a, a comic book anchor also sitting next to him named Arnie Starr, who's an actor. He, I think he was in Star Trek. Uh, and he was a great comic book anchor. And I remember seeing the page he was working on of the DC comic and, and then the cells, the struts were going the wrong way. I was like, Hey, you, you, the penciler did the struts going the wrong way. Do you want me to fix it? He's like, no. <laughs> But I found the panel and he did fix it huh. 33 so you, years ago. Yeah, You're actually a hero in the Star Trek universe. We didn't even know it. So, you know, you're a music producer and I'd like to know, you know, we're talking about you doing, uh, you know, wanting to do films and wanting to do stuff in the creative world. So when does music actually begin to fit into this? And is Star Trek a part of that story? It is. Um, so I, I'm not really a music producer, but I have been like a CD producer. And the distinction is that I was never involved in the actual production of the music. I was never involved in in conducting and the orchestras and the mixing and all that engineering. You're more like in the licensing side of things, right? Right. So I had my magazine film score monthly and we would review our favorite soundtrack CDs. And when you're a big soundtrack CD nerd, what you realize and what you learn is that a lot of the CDs came out and they were incomplete because mm -hmm. back in the day there was, there might be 90 minutes of music in the film, but the little LP would only hold 35. So the composer would pick the 35 minutes that were best for a record and that would be the record album. But years later, all of us nerds, we wanted to hear the whole thing. So there are these boutique CD companies, and I created one of them that would license from, in this case, Paramount, uh, the soundtrack rights. And we would and we'd go into the vaults and we'd get the tapes transferred and we'd uh, do new mixes where we did, where we had to. And we would sort of curate these expanded collector nerd editions and, and, uh, and that was what I did for a good 15 years. And I did, uh, and I was involved in one way or another with uh, all the Star Trek movies through Nemesis. There were a lot of partners I had in these projects, so I don't mean to be taking all the credit. I did, uh, I, I, was, I, I, I was one of a team that did the 15 disc box set of the original series music that La La Land released. We subsequently did a uh, 50th anniversary album that had the animated series music. I did a big box set of all the Ron Jones composed scores to the next generation. I was involved in some other album projects from the next generation and deep space nine and Voyager and enterprise. So, uh, you know, we kept very busy doing these. And again, it was a whole team of us. So we would do the licenses, we'd get the music, we'd sort of figure out what the sequencing should be. We would correct any defects that had surfaced in the, in the tapes or in the transfers and, and we would write the liner notes and we'd proofread the liner notes and we'd select the artwork and we'd design the covers. And so that was my world for quite some time. And just because we know you already have some pretty serious nerd cred here, but you did a bunch of other things too besides Trek that I saw on your, on the, uh, I think it was the La La Land website, in fact, and I think on your resume as well. Uh, so if you don't mind, just can you tell my audience uh, some of the other things that you've gotten to work on in the music world? Well, it's all, it's all the soundtrack CDs, but when I was, when I had my company, Film Score Monthly, we did 250 albums and those are, some very famous movies, everything from The French Connection to Patton to The Wild Bunch to Body Heat. Uh, I mean, and The Man from Uncle, I Spy, it goes on and on. And then as a freelancer and as an independent producer for some of my former competitors, because after a while I just got tired of having my own label, uh, I worked on many more. Uh, there was a brief bit of time when I worked on some James Bond soundtracks. So 
if you have like the You Only Live Twice CD that has the extra music and the bonus tracks at the end, I put that together for them in like three weeks, very hastily when they suddenly decided they wanted it and had no money. Uh, so yeah, so and then and when I was doing Film Score Monthly, there was a lot of uh, um, composer interviews uh, that we did, a lot of chronicling and documentation, and ad nauseum. So I want to ask you a few more questions about Film Score Monthly, but I actually want to know before we get into that, uh, are you like musically inclined in any way? Like, do you actually play any instruments or anything? Uh, like that? I'm a I'm a dilettante. Uh, so when I was a kid, I played a few instruments at different times. Um, I did study music at college. I do read music. I understand music theory, but I don't have any real keyboard skills. And uh, I, I read it very slowly. So if it's in bass clef, it's like, uh, you know, if it's in alto clef for the for the violas, I'm like, you know. So I, I'm I'm a, I'm a yeah I'm a dilettante, but I do love it, and I think I you know I under I do understand it. And when we were doing um, my short film, the scoring was. Uh, it was very interesting. It was very fun to get a chance to work with the composer and 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 really get into the subtleties of how you do that. It's very hard. Yeah, and I like the fact that also you know it's cool that you're admitting the fact that yeah, like you know you might not be a musician necessarily, but this is still a role that you can be a big big part of. I think that's kind of good to know for a lot of folks there who might want to be in that realm, but maybe they don't know how to read music even or things like oh, that. Oh no, there's there, other avenues there, you can do. They're total ignoramuses who do this. No, I'm like super highly educated, relatively speaking. <laughs> but it's funny because I one time I was out to dinner, it's like 20 years ago with my family, and you know, on the the restaurant there was like classical music on the sound system, and my dad was like, I "Wonder what that is?" And I said, "Oh, that's Debussy." And he said, "How do you know that?" I said, "Because you spent 200 grand for me to go to Amherst." <laughs> so, <laughs> money well spent, right there. That's the proof, yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So yeah, let's talk a little more about Film Score Monthly now, because like I, I remember actually I think seeing that even in stores. Uh, I feel like, I, or maybe I didn't make it up. I have no idea, but I feel like I might well, have. we used to, we used to have it in Tower Records, and there was some limited newsstand distribution, very limited. It got around, you know. It, yeah, it, like it's a name it, I know, which is weird because I'm know. not like like I said earlier, I'm not like the most musically inclined. But as soon as I saw that, I knew it. So I mean, yeah, and I, read, a, I heard a little about the story behind it. So yeah, it's real, like really a little grassroots thing that you kind of blew up into this huge thing. So yeah, please tell me about the journey with that. Well, it never became huge. It was, uh, I think, we were printing maybe five or six thousand copies at the most, and it was a, a unique period of, of time. It was, um, it was really the internet existed. It was being used on campuses, but it was not commercially being used until the mid '90s, and so. You couldn't get news. I mean, so if you wanted to, if you wanted to learn who was James Horner, what did he do? You couldn't just look it up. You couldn't go to IMDb and get a list of his movies. So there was this whole um, subculture of people who made filmographies and made lists and wrote our own movie review, music reviews, and collected the records and made our own discographies. So it was very homemade. Uh, and I just uh, was a very entrepreneurial kid. I mean. I was on Martha's Vineyard. I was a teenager. There weren't a lot of other kids that shared my interests in, in film music. Uh, my parents were divorced. I was very lonely and probably very interior and needed distractions. And, and it was very distracting figuring out how to write and edit a newsletter and correspond with people. So I had a, I had a letter in the old Starlog magazine saying, let's start a fan club. And like a dozen people wrote me. And I just started sending them a monthly newsletter like, hey, I just saw Back to the Future 3 and it had really good music. And that was kind of the depth and extent of the newsletter. But over over time, I met more people. I met one of the Star Trek composers on Martha's Uh His name is Jay Chataway, and he did music for The Next Generation through Enterprise. He wrote the Inner Light music. And uh, a su super nice man and um, very talented, uh, but really a, really a great person. And uh, I used to, when I was reaching out with my little newsletter to actual composers in Hollywood, because I had gotten, I had met a few people who said, hey, I can introduce you to people who might like this. I sent a letter to Jay Chataway, and he wrote back and said, by the way, you could have looked me up in your local phone book. So I need to explain for the kids. A phone book was this uh, directory of people's telephone numbers, which only went to their houses, not to their personal pockets. And it, but it was true. It said Jay Chataway in Katama, so Agartown. Uh, so it was funny. He had a summer home on Marcus Vineyard. So I met him there uh, as well. 
Yeah, I gotta tell you too, Lucas, you know, like, five or six thousand is still a pretty big number, and the fact is, I mean, that five or six thousand did ultimately get you access to a lot of really big folks to talk to. I mean, I know you interviewed a lot of people for Film Score Monthly. Who would you say was, uh, I guess I want to find out, who's the most eccentric musician? Who's the most fascinating eyebrow-raising musician or composer you spoke to for the magazine? Uh, I don't know. Maybe the answer will come to me. Uh, I haven't thought about this in a while. I don't want to... Um... There were some more, uh, I would say, obscure composers who were a little eccentric. Uh, the, oh, ah, here's a good story. So the guy who, who Elliot Goldenfall, who scored Alien Three and Demolition Man, and and he lots and lots of great movies. I told this story on my blog, so I reached out to him because I wanted to interview him for Demolition Man, and I called him in the afternoon. I got his number in New York, and uh, he goes, uh, "Can we do it later?" I said, "Sure." What time? He goes, "How about one?" It's already like four in the afternoon. I go, "One in the morning?" He goes, "Yeah," and I'm a college kid, so I'm up. I'm like, "Okay." So I call him back at 1 a.m. And he's like slurry. I mean, he's wasted. And I learned that he was pretty much like an alcoholic who would <laughs> who would work all night as this kind of like alcoholic vampire doing his uh, scores. And Elliot Goldenthal, if you're listening to this, uh, you know, I'm sorry if this is speaking out of school, but um, it happened and it was funny. I'm pretty sure we're safe here. I doubt he's listening to Trek Untold, but hey, you never know. If he does, hey, shout out to Elliot. <laughs> so, um, so that was an interesting story. I was friends with, um, I mean, f- friends. I yeah, I was friends with Basil Polidorus, who co- who composed Conan and Robocop and Unfred October, and uh, he was a really great person. He's also a redshirt in a couple in a Star Trek episode. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, but he told me once. He goes, you know, I was in Star Trek. I was like, what? He was a student at USC. He went to USC at the same time as um, George Lucas. And there was a whole gang of them who went to USC. And like for spending money, they would go be extras on Hollywood TV shows. So Basil Polidorus, the composer of Robocop, Hunt for October, Free Willy, Starship Troopers, is one of the red shirts in the episode Obsession. So you're telling me now. So you're telling me now is I got to go track him down because I have an excuse to get him on the show. Well, I have bad news. Uh, Basil died. You got my hopes up, Lucas. You got my hopes I'm up. Sorry. Just crushed it's right very now. sad. I was just a, a couple of months ago at a tribute concert uh, that they did for him at, uh, at uh, Disney Hall. And, and it was a great, great tribute concert. He was really a great person, but he, he did get cancer and pass away. And um, But he was also, the, in, the epi- the, in the Nazi Planet episode, you may remember that when they're trapped in the room with the guy and they're trying to get the guy to like give one last speech to say the Nazis are bad. And one of the guards goes up and puts his face in the window and looks like that. That was Basil. But it's not the guy that the bad guy says, go check the booth. So that's a different actor. Someone, this is how cheap they were. He goes, go check the booth. And then that other actor goes out of frame. And then there's the shot of Basil doing this in the window. And then Basil's also a Klingon in Aaron of Mercy. That is some really cool stuff. I never knew that. And Basil's music too. You know, like, again, like I don't really know composers or things like that that well, but like RoboCop, Starship Troopers, Conan the Barbarian, those are amazing soundtracks. They're uh, great. He was, yeah. yeah, he was really a great composer. Um, I had an sort of interesting, sort of adversarial relationship with Jerry Goldsmith. Really? Because <laughs> Jerry was um genius composer, uh, beloved by everybody, by us. Uh, but he was very sensitive. Hmm. And by the time we were doing Film Score Monthly, we were a bunch of sort of uh, outspoken nerds. And we would be like, I like this one, but not this one. He copied himself here. And he, he you know, I don't like that theme. That one theme is too sentimental. So, you know, that was what we did as nerds. It was, it's not our job. to. And we would send these magazines and a lot of people would read them. You know, they just, it doesn't mean anything to them if a bunch of fans are ranking their scores or complaining about, that they thought the score to Mr. Baseball was silly, which it was. doesn't matter. But Jerry was very sensitive, and he thought these guys were jerks. And he just, he was like, he just didn't like us. Mm-hmm. And his kid uh, was Joel Goldsmith, who has a co-composing credit on First Contact. He was also a composer. He also did some, Joel Goldsmith did some sound design on Star Trek The Motion Picture. And Joel was kind of an instigator. And would like always fax Jerry whenever we did a particularly negative review. So 
I went to the scoring session of LA Confidential as a guest of one of the percussionists. And I was like, you know, I don't think Jerry likes me. And this percussionist, Emil Richards, who's a genius, genius percussionist, was like, Jerry's a, he's a sweetheart. He's a doll. Don't worry. He'll love you. I'm like, okay. So I go to the date and we're, I'm sitting in the back with my friend, the percussionist. And he goes, all right, I'm going to tell him you're here. Walks up into the booth. I'm like, comes back. He's got, you know, it's like someone died. And he goes, I, I got to tell you, I, I told him you were here. And he said, get that little shit out of here. I don't want him here. But I said, Jerry, he loves you. I mean, can he stay? And so then he said, I can stay. So I, I was very tense for me. I mean, it was like meeting the Pope or something. Uh, it was very weird. You know, why would Jerry Goldsmith care what some kid, I was like 24, wrote about, you know, his music. But then I went to meet to introduce myself because I'm not a coward. There are many things you can say about me, but I'm not a, I'm not chicken about this stuff. So I went in to see him and he, he goes, um, yeah, I've written a lot of shit about me, Lucas. I just said something like, I'm sorry. And he goes, okay, well, you can stay here. Hang out. We're having lunch or whatever it was. It was just a very weird, um, it was very memorable to, to me. And I wrote about it in my blog. So if you want the long version of this story, I don't know. They were, you know, Danny Elfman was always very cool. He seems like Tom Zimmer is extremely cool. Uh, most of the great composers who have these amazing careers and who just work and work and work, they have the they have great personalities. They're like they're almost rabbinical, even when they're not Jewish. Like half of them are Jewish and half of them aren't, but they're they're just they're very easy to talk to. They're very understanding because they make their living being the last person to go into these extremely high pressure environments to do the music. And they're dealing with studios and directors and sometimes stars. I mean, everybody's just totally frazzled and people don't know how to talk about music. And they're the person who is like, tell me what you want. I'm here for you. And, and they have to sort of figure out what these compose, these directors want, even though the directors uh, can sometimes be famously inarticulate hmm. and kind of uh, difficult. You know, they might change their minds. They might think that, you know, get rid of that oboe when they mean the saxophone, you know, they don't even know what they're listening to. So the great composers are just, they're just these very well-balanced people. And they're, they're wonderful to talk to. Alan Silvestri is just the nicest guy. He's just super, super nice. And Michael Kamen was just a wonderful man. Uh, John Powell, I mean, they're, what I've, I've always enjoyed meeting them. And maybe, you know, if you sort of get them, you know, go out and have a drink and you know, they'll tell you who they don't, who's frustrated, you know, who's difficult or who's what project they liked and what project they didn't really like. But generally they're there to get along and they're there to work. And, and, a, and a huge percentage of the work is not just writing the music. It's, it's producing the, the, the score when you have all these combustible personalities. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout 
for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using Untold 10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing? Whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together. How they got that great sound quality. What gear they used. How much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler, and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades, speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, and most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's Toys and Tech of the Trade with some assembly required. So, Lucas, let's get into our Star Trek talk proper now, if you will. And so, Oh, okay. Yeah, let's, let's, let's try and figure out now So, how you went from Film Score Monthly to getting involved in Star Trek professionally. So how, how does it actually come together? Is that, is that through a lightsing deal? Yeah, it was all continuous because um, I always wanted to do Star I mean, Star Trek's the, the holiest of the holies of, of film and TV music to me. So, of course, I wanted to release it. And for the longest time, Paramount, uh, they were just, they had administration that would not do any licensing. They just, they didn't believe in it. If, if you say to them, I'll make you $10,000, I mean, that's, that's not even lunch money. They're doing deals for composers for like 300,000, for 800,000. And they just don't, they don't even want to deal with the paperwork. So there was administration at Paramount for the longest time that was not helpful. And then Paramount, um, how they, you know, they merged with CBS and then they divorced from CBS and now they've merged again, during which time all the television properties went over to CBS. So I was doing my CE label for many years when it turned out that the administration at Paramount had changed and suddenly uh, a super cool guy was in charge of the business affairs, a guy who had been uh, just a friend of mine who had really been always so, so kind to me. And he did my first, he made my first album deal happen when I didn't know anything. He's like, okay, I know what you want. I can make this happen. I'll go to my boss. I'll get permission. Just a great, great, great super dude. And uh, I was being given a tour of Paramount and I turned the corner and my old friend was sitting in the big desk. I was like, you're running this now? And I was like, oh, this will be fun. So then we did Star Trek Two, And uh, the way the licensing works is a little complicated, not worth explaining. But because of the original vinyl album record deals they did at the time of the movies, the Star Trek soundtrack rights are not solely with Paramount, but they're all spread out. So each movie was its own record deal. And sometimes with, there was not a lot of logic involved with who got the, the license. Sometimes it was the flavor of the moment. Sometimes it was uh, if they had an artist who we wanted to be on the soundtrack, we would go with them. So there was like every movie is its own thing. So you have to go to that original record company, their successor in interest, and do two deals for the same score because you have to get the record tracks and then the unreleased film tracks. So it's a pain in the butt, but you can do it. So we did do it. And uh, I did Star Trek two and it was, it was one of my all time favorite scores and had 
unreleased cues that I always wanted to hear. And, um, and so that was the first one. Then we did Star Trek three. And then by then, I think that some of my uh, competitors who were also my friends got the rights because they were there ahead of me to Star Trek's one and five and, and four and six. But I had already been working with Paramount. So I was like, look, I'm happy for you to do this on your label, but I've already sort of figured out uh, how to work with their vaults. And could I collaborate with you and help with some of the production? Because I can pull the tapes and you know, I, my buddy and I can do the liner notes. So we all kind of teamed up to do it together. And then I was able to get an introduction from my friend at Paramount to CBS. And I was able to do the Ron Jones scores because those scores were very special to me. When I was 15, 16 years old, my parents were divorced and my whole world was the third season of Star Trek Next Generation. And I was trying my hand at being a screenwriter and I was sending spike, uh, spec scripts to Michael Piller's office or to Eric Stilwell. Star Trek was unlike any other TV show. When Michael Piller came in in the third season, the cupboards were bare. And he uh, recognized that it was a very unique show. And they were having a very hard time having regular TV writers write for Star Trek because Roddenberry had said, I don't want conflict between our characters, which is the whole, which means no conflict, no drama. And the, these guys were like, how do I write this? This is insane. So they were having a really hard time getting people up to speed with Star Trek land. So Michael Piller said, let's just open it up and, and read fan scripts. And, you know, we'll get a hundred of them. 98 will be terrible, but two of them might have really be really great or they might have really good ideas, then we can just buy the idea and turn that into an episode. So I don't remember how I even heard, but there were a lot of fans who ended up, like Tin Man is based on a fan script. And that episode, Tin Man in particular, they were like out of scripts. So that script is very similar to the fan script. So most of the time the, they would be rewritten by the staff. Uh, Ron Moore was discovered this way. And that might've been one of the reasons why Pillar started doing it because Ron Moore was just a fan with no TV experience. And he had like a girlfriend who worked for an office and he got a set tour and he slipped them the bonding. And then nine months later, like they found the bonding when they needed scripts and Pillar was like, this is great. Let's buy this and make it. And that's, so anyway, so I was trying my hand at a, as a 16 year old and all my scripts were terrible. <laughs> they were all just like stupid fan service. They were, you know, they looked like scripts, but they didn't really have the dramatic, uh, structure. So, and the ideas weren't very good. So, but I worked so hard on them and it was my dream to write Star Trek. And I was watching Star Trek, uh, just religiously. You know, I would, I would tape the episodes. I would pour over the episodes. And in the process of doing that, I became really infatuated with the music scores because I'd always been a fan of the original series and of the films. But the, when it started the next generation, the music scores were, they were aesthetically different. They were more electronic. Uh, you know, it took me a while to warm up to them, but I really got invested in what Ron Jones was doing. And he would score typically every other episode and he would treat each one like a, like a film. And he was very much influenced by Jerry Goldsmith and he wrote very thematically. Uh, the other composer at the time, Dennis McCarthy, uh, sort of had a different philosophy for his scores where they were all kind of one continuing saga he didn't really write themes, so it was very hard for me to remember his scores because they didn't have tunes per episode the way Ron's did. And it's just a matter of taste. Uh, but it was to my taste, I really loved Ron's scores. And after, uh, late in the fourth season, they basically let Ron go because they didn't like what he was doing. And uh, Ron's a character. He's a character. And he's a, he's a passionate, passionate person, but he was not taking stenography from producers. You know, he was very artistic. And at a, after four years, they're like, okay, enough of this. And they got Jay Chataway, who had filled in a couple of times to be the regular composer. So for the most of the history of the Rick Berman era shows, the composers were Dennis McCarthy and Jay Chataway. And then as they were doing two shows at month, uh, uh, two shows at the same time, they brought in, um, David Bell and Paul Belorgian and then Velton Ray Bunch, a couple of people who just did an episode or two. Um, but I really loved the Ron Jones scores. And so I was able to get a license from CBS to do a big box set. 
Is this the question you asked? You know, I'm not sure, but this is actually much more interesting than whatever the hell I asked. So I'm all, all for right. it. Uh, yeah, because this is the stuff I actually really want to get to know with you is a lot of the Star Trek music history. I think it's it's really cool to hear. And uh, again, it's something I'm pretty ignorant about. So uh, it's really cool to hear about this kind of stuff. But I do actually want to take one step backwards for a second. And uh, you, know, you mentioned how you're making these CDs and you have access to the vault. And like in my mind, I'm just picturing this like maximum security physical vault where there's like guards posted all the time, keeping people out of there. Um, but really what, what exactly is it that like, you know, you're going into a vault, let's say what, what is it that's in there? And well, it's not like Harry Potter. Um, oh, that ruins the whole image for me or Indiana Jones. No, it's, um, it's just these, there would typically be, uh, a building on the lot at Paramount. They call it the archive building and they have shelving and they, and, um, the shelving has tapes and then, but most of it is in deep storage. So there's some companies, there, there are a few in, uh, in the Valley. There's one called Film Bond. I don't know. They change hands. They get different names, but they're just these big warehouses that are climate controlled that have just have shelving and have barcodes. And, and so it's not really all that mysterious. And so when you, when you're requesting the tapes, you use the inventory system and you can sort by title or sort by format. Uh, half inch tape or quarter inch tape or two inch tape. They're just, they're different phases of the recording process. And you kind of learn the different recording errors and, and what uh, outputs they were likely to have. Uh, and then they're just stored. Some of them are stored in these literal salt mine vaults in Kansas where they're deep underground and they're climate controlled and they're sort of earthquake proof and, and they're super secure. And then you just say, you know, we want, you give them the barcode and then they, put it in a box and FedEx it and then the studio contact and say, okay, that box came in and I've got the tapes you wanted. And so it was always sort of like a, is, is everything there? Did, does some tapes would get lost from earthquake damage when the earth, the North, the 94 Northridge crate, there was um, sprinkler systems went off. And so some studios lost assets from water damage. There was a fire at universal in 2008 that they won't talk about for insurance reasons, but they lost a lot of stuff. Mostly not Universal Studios, but Universal, the music company, which is different. It's kind of Byzantine, the different, you know, there's Warner Brothers, the record company, Warner Brothers, the film company, and and there's Universal Music and Universal Studios. And, and it's it's kind of confusing. And and I've learned to how to how the different corporate families sold and bought and sold all their uh, catalogs. So you, you're getting these tapes we're talking about right now, and so I'm wondering, since you mentioned that you had to remix a lot of these for different things, like, are you getting stems? Are you getting the entire, like, piece, which would be, I guess, like, you know, let's say one flat file to work on? Uh, or do you basically build layers upon layers when you're when you're in the post-production room, I guess, making these Well, mixes? I was, again, I was never in post-production. Uh, so I had the, I was working with the products of post-production. So uh, okay. but to give you an example, if it was... Um, if it was 1990 and they were doing Star Trek Next Generation, they would, uh, they had several tapes running at the same time in the recording. Okay. Like one of those 16 track recording kind of things. Uh, after 16 track, uh, they would have 24 tracks. So it's a okay. two inch tape. So it's like this thick. Do you ever see Brainstorm? Yeah. 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 That's two inch tape, but that was like some toy thing they got for the movie. So, but that's the kind of thing it is. It's like two inch tape. It's like if you watch an old Beatles documentary, you see this stuff. If you watch Get Back, um, so it'd be a two-inch tape, and it has twenty-four channels. Not all the channels would be used, and they would lay out the different tracks of the orchestra. So, like the flute would be on one track, the clarinet would be another track, the trumpets would be on a track, the French horns would be on a track, the high strings would be on a track, the low strings would be on a track, the percussion would be. On, you know, it's all it's all different based on the recording engineer and and the composer's preference. So those would be what we call the multi-tracks that. If you wanted to uh, do a new mix from scratch, and sometimes the composer would ask to do that, you could pull these two-inch tapes and and you could put it all into the computer and Pro Tools. They used to do it live with mixing boards, but now they would do it in the computer because it's just easier and cheaper. It's kind of safer too. You know, you transfer it, then you're not handling the original asset anymore. You've just got it all in the computer at a very high sampling rate. And, um, you know, you have a lot of control to fix uh, performance errors. You can pull pieces from a different take and drop it in. All kinds of trickery with digital mastering. If the recording is degraded, you can 
you can fix things. You can, if it's overblown, you can fix it. If it has a pop, you can draw it out on the waveform. It's a very technical process. Uh, there, some of my friends and colleagues are extremely good at it, and they're the real students of it. I'm, I'm not, although I came to know what it could and couldn't do. So, but back to the the mixing stage, they would run that two inch track as that's pretty much the backup. Okay. They would also do a live mix because they were they didn't really have time and money in television to mix it twice. So they would prefer to have um, a live mix that would be on a what would they use? Sometimes on a half inch tape, but they're only using two channels of it. And sometimes, and they would also, I think, run it live to a two-track DAT or maybe a D88. It's just different audio and digital formats. They had all these redundant things running. And throughout the history, like if when we did the original series, uh, they would record. I'm not exactly sure. They would record a live mix that was mono, because of course television until the 80s was always mono. And sometimes if they wanted more control over it, they would uh, record it also onto a stereo, onto a half inch three track or four track tape or uh, onto 35 millimeter three track film or four track film. They would also use a sync tone. So uh, there's one um, channel of the tape or the film that just has a hum. It just has a tone to it because they can use that tone to align the tape and make sure that it's running at the correct speed because otherwise it would get out of sync. When you're running at 30, when you're running 35 millimeters uh, mag, because of the sprockets, it's always running at the right speed, I think. Or maybe not. They, they maybe I'm I'm so ignorant that I'm wrong. But anyway, they would have this tone on it so that they could adjust the, the machinery on their playback equipment and make sure that it was always running true at the correct speed because analog machines, you'll have what they call analog drift. And it may be imperceptible to the ear, but over a three minute piece of music, it'll be off by a second, which is enough to be out of sync with the film. So I'm just curious, Lucas, uh, from all the Star Trek CDs you so sold, what was the most popular one? I think the, um, on my label, Star Trek two, and I think the overall, the Star Trek, uh, 15 CD box set from the original series. Because hmm, okay. that was really like the holy grail because those scores were libraries. It was a sort of a library concept. Do you know, are you familiar with this? Uh, I know nothing about any of this. <laughs> okay, great. Easy. Okay, back in the 60s, they had a certain rule with the musicians unit that when they're making television shows, they were obligated to employ musicians to do maybe like eight or nine episodes. But once they had satisfied that quota, they were allowed to reuse the recordings. And that's why a lot of the original Star Trek music is so familiar, because after they did their eight or nine original scores, they would just use the old scores over and over. It would be a music library. So you'd hear, da -da, you know, it was the same stings and it was the same fight music over and yeah, over again. That's why we heard like the arena theme by Gerald Freed like a hundred times. Exactly. Because they, it was a library and because they could not afford to pay a new a composer to do a new score. And it was just not in their budget. Uh, so because it, for a lot of reasons, the original Star Trek movie, it really burned its way into our ears because we were hearing the same pieces over and over. And those love themes and those fight themes and those suspense themes became so familiar by the time they got into the 80s, the musicians union rules had changed and they were obligated to use a new, uh, to have a new recording done every episode. So every episode of the next generation onward has a, a custom composed original score, but also the aesthetics had changed. And it was one of the things they discovered when they were doing the next generation. I don't know if you remember this, but the episode, the very early racist episode, Code of Honor, has a score by Fred Steiner, who was one of the original series composers. And that was the original plan that Fred was still around and working and that he would rotate with Dennis McCarthy and Ron Jones, but they did one episode and his style was just, you know, it was, it was just old fashioned and it didn't work for, uh, it was just too, you know, they didn't, Rick Berman especially really did not 
like um, music that was in your face. You know, he didn't like music to be a, a cinematic component to the scoring. That's another reason why they they let Ron Jones go because he Rick Berman believed that the music was uh, it was sort of best as a kind of wallpaper, and that anything that was too thematic or too unique or too memorable to the ear would be distracting from the drama, or that it might be kind of mocking the drama or mocking the audience, or it would it would take him back to an era where the music was just uh, uh, too corny, for lack of a better word. And that was his judgment, and he was the boss. And as a music fan, I think that that was uh, misguided. And I think that his composers could have done a lot more. I know because I, I knew them, and they would tell me on the record and off the record that they found it kind of confounding that they were not allowed to write as expressively or as thematically as they would want to do for these very interesting, very heartfelt, very emotional shows. They were being asked to take the emotion out of the music. When emo that, That's the whole thing. That's the whole reason the, the music is there, to add the emotion. But uh, Rick Berman is not a very emotional man. <laughs> well, that much we do know, yeah. Uh, you know, I heard, uh, I think I read something about this on your, possibly in your blog, possibly somewhere else, but like, I heard that the Star Trek The Motion Picture score was quite, I mean, the whole production was apparently a little bit tumultuous, but I heard the score also had some some things going on with it. Uh, can you tell us any stories about the first Star Trek movie? Of course. So the first Star Trek movie has one of the all-time great, not just Star Trek scores, but any score from any movie. It's by Jerry Goldsmith, who is one of, one of the all-time geniuses. And his credits, I mean, Planet of the Apes, Papillon, Chinatown, Poltergeist, uh, uh, Total Recall. I mean, it's like 90 or 150. I don't even know how many, but it's like 90 amazing genre scores the omen for he won an oscar and just he he was the greatest and he he, and he almost threw me out of the scoring stage for la confidential so he was hired by robert wise to score star trek the motion picture because it was a very big prestigious movie they had a very prestigious director and robert wise and had worked with jerry goldsmith on the sand pebbles they knew each other they liked each other and it was just great casting for the first Star Trek score. In fact, they wanted to get Jerry Goldsmith as far back as the television show, but either they couldn't work out the fee or the budget or the, or the, um, excuse me, or the uh, schedule. But so they, they hired Jerry Goldsmith, but, and the, the production of Star Trek, the motion picture was so tumultuous and Gene Roddenberry was so interfering and they were so behind the eight ball without, when they were shooting without a finished script that the it all dragged on. And then they had a massive, massive problem with the special effects because their original effects vendor, Robert Abel, basically talked a good game, but he was not able to deliver. He just, he couldn't get it done. And so after a year of listening to Robert Abel talk about how great he was and seeing all these amazing posters and uh, paintings and concept art, Robert Wise had to, had to fire him because he didn't, he hadn't done any work. And and in it, uh, and it's, and they were locked into their release date because of the blind booking that they did with the movie theaters. So if they were not able to meet their December 7th release date, they would have to refund millions and millions of dollars in penalties to all the movie theaters. So the movie had to be done at this date. And they had, uh, they had uh, John Dykstra's outfit and they had Douglas Trumbull's outfit working around the clock on the special effects which in the end were beautiful. But at the time they were desperate because they, they didn't even know what they got done. It was just the absolute worst way to make a movie. So for the music, um, the composer cannot write music without a film. I mean, you can, you can write themes, you can kind of work up musical ideas, but so much of the effort is into synchronizing the composition on a second by second basis with the movie. And if there's no movie, he can't write any music. Plus, if it's just, he's writing to black screens that says, Beecher here. It's like, well, what is this? You know, so he, they started, they had booked Jerry Goldsmith to be on a weekly salary, which is how they did it back in that, starting, I think, in July or maybe August. And he didn't have any, anything to score. And they finally got him some live action scenes. And they got him like a, a, a temporary version of the Enterprise flyby. And he finally had enough footage that he could sort of see what he was scoring. 
and he did a first attempt and recorded maybe 20 to 25 minutes of music, but it, it did not have the Star Trek theme that you and I now know and love. It had an earlier version. It was sort of the same musical idea, but it was not the march. It was not in the same form. And this was very rare for Jerry to not get something right. And Bob Wise had to take him aside and say, I think we have a problem. It's not really working. It's too nautical. It's too much like sailing ships. It's not really capturing this movie the way I think it has to. And that plus the fact that they didn't have any other picture to score, they just said, okay, let's just pull the plug for a month. And uh, so Jerry went away and then he figured out the Star Trek theme and he wrote the rest of what we know as the theme to the next generation as it was repurposed and everything was fine. Um, but now the clock is ticking into October. And what happened with Jerry Goldsmith is he no longer had enough time. There just wasn't enough minutes of man hours that he could write this music. So they had to bring in Fred Steiner to ghostwrite, I think, 10 cues. So they would they would go over it together and, and Fred would use Jerry's tunes, but Fred would just sort of write the cues in the style of Jerry Goldsmith. So in the end, the the score was a it was a co collaboration. It's it's Jerry Goldsmith's score, but it does have some cues that were ghostwritten by Fred Steiner. The uses of the original series theme were done by Sandy Courage. And uh, I think somebody else did, uh, Ian Frazier is the guy's name, who did the the love theme, the overture version of Eileen's theme. Mm. So just by nature of movie scheduling, they had to have some other hands in there to get it done. But in the end, it's genius. It's one of the all-time greats. Yeah, I always like remember the first time I saw Star Trek the Motion Picture and I heard the theme for it, and I was like, "That's the next gen theme." I, I, I was just like, not expecting it; I didn't know it. Well, you're uh, a kid. Yeah, for exactly. us, it was the other way around. <laughs> I was so excited for Encounter at Farpoint. So, what's the new theme going to be? And then when it went into this, I was like, "I already know this. I wanted a new theme." <laughs> well, yeah. On that note, I mean, I'd love to hear what is your personal favorite theme from Star Trek, and that's across all the different shows. And uh, I guess to put on top of that too. For the folks who have done like the classic version of the theme, who did it the best? Oh, I, I prefer, for me, I prefer the original. But probably the original second season version that Sandy did that has the, the singer, the vocal. Because in the first season, there's two versions. One of them has an electric violin. And then there's a version that Fred Steiner arranged that has the melody on a cello. Mm. I, pref I, prefer the, I prefer the original. My overall favorite Star Trek music, uh, the very you know, very crowded field, but I still prefer the James Horner score uh, to Star Trek two and three. It's my favorite film too, Star Trek two. Well, for someone who knows music like you do, what is it that for you makes it so special and makes it so great? Um, well, James Horner was a really incredibly gifted uh, man. And he did that when he, he, I don't think he was even 30 years old. And he was, and he was, um, he was an eccentric person. He, his family, I don't know if you know this, but he died in a plane crash. He died in a few, um, some, some years ago. I forget the exact year. And he was a, a hobbyist. Uh, uh, he liked to fly planes. And he was in one of his hobbyist uh, single-person airplanes, and it crashed. They died. So that's um, a very dangerous hobby. But he was his family since then has been very outspoken about saying that he was pretty much on the autism spectrum and that for him scoring movies was his emotional communication and that he was somebody who found it very difficult in real life to commu to communicate emotion to communicate love for his family and you know he was he was a difficult person to get along with he he could be very interior and non-communicative and his way of channeling that feeling was through his music. And so a lot of fans find James Horner's scores to be the most gorgeous and emotional. I mean, he did Cocoon and Willow and Titanic, of course, and Braveheart and The Beautiful Mind and Apollo 13 and many, many famous movies. And, and he really had a gift for connecting emotionally to audiences. Uh, but he was also something of a prodigy as a composer. And at a very young age was able to, to master orchestration and to have the orchestra just be a, very delightful to listen to, to have all these, these sort of rolling nautical, it feels like ocean waves. It feels very seafaring, 
which was the mandate that he got from Nick Meyer, because Nick Meyer was trying to do Hornblower. Nick Meyer uh, didn't really understand or, or even like Star Trek. It was, but he was, you know, the job was there and he was interested because he realized they reminded him of Horatio Hornblower, which he, he did love those books. And Roddenberry had also used that as a template. So that was very much the guiding light of Star Trek II. And that was communicated to James Horner, who picked it up for this beautiful seafaring nautical uh, type music. And then he wrote the um you know these battle scenes the whole concept in that movie is that they're like it's like world war ii the frigate against the submarine and yeah and uh the way he had these chattering brass and these wonderful fanfares and it just has this wonderful swelling electric feeling of the majesty of the orchestra and, and how he was able to draw upon 20th century classical literature and and he kind of he ripped some stuff off that is known to us nerds, and and I think uh, that's a story that Nick Meyer tells because he heard a passage that's pretty much from Alexander Nevsky by Prokofiev, and Nick on the scoring stage pulled him aside and said like you know what is this I don't you think I don't know what this is, and Horner said I'm young I just haven't outgrown my influences so but that's my favorite and uh, it's really my favorite film it's the most mature it's the most adult. I think it's the best that Shatner has ever been. And it's just not, it was before, you know, it was before Star Trek kind of had to acknowledge its own weight as a pop icon. Mm. So it, it didn't have this silly kind of, it wasn't winking, you know, it was just like this dramatic story about this old sea captain and his friend. And then this bad guy tries to kill him. And it's just this, this sci-fi movie that happens to be Star Trek. Yeah, I think the fact that Nick Meyer just wasn't really a Trekkie also is part of why it's so good. Like he didn't really feel like he had to do a lot of the things that Star Trek fans expected. He could just yeah, do whatever he a wanted. lot of the, a lot of the most consequential creators have not been Star Trek fans. Michael Piller was not really into it. Rick Berman, I don't think, was a big Star Trek person. I may be wrong. I can't quite remember what I'm referencing. But J.J. Uh, Abrams never really liked it. Uh, and I know there's some debates in fan circles about how he kind of turned it into Star Wars, but he definitely made it very popular. And all the new shows are following the style that he laid out. And Lucas, you know, as we're coming to a close of this interview here, I do want to mention again, uh, you know, I just feel so bad that I feel like I can't actually talk about music that well. It's just not something I really specialize in. I don't really have a great uh, vocabulary or knowledge base about it. So it's been real helpful having this conversation with you today. No, it's really fine. You know, it's music is unlike almost all of the other aspects of Star Trek that have been studied and admired away from the episodes and the movies. You can look at the costumes, you can look at the blueprints, you can look at the props, you know, you can look at the set design, you can look at the world building, you can look at the alien races, you can look at the languages, but it's all very much from the world building. And the start, the music is the one thing that is abstract. And it's the emotional content of the storytelling in it. And so it's really the polar opposite of all these other things. And, and because of that, if you don't have experience in that, it can be hard to articulate. But I tend to think, you know, having spent most of my life talking about this stuff and evangelizing for music that's very meaningful to me, that there's really nothing at all wrong with people loving things or having opinions and having tastes, even if they're not, you know, at all, uh, educated musically or cinema musically it's really you know it's all here for us to enjoy it and everybody's opinion is valid so i don't care at all all right so lucas you mentioned a few other things you're working on at the start of this interview but just kind of fill my audience in on what else is going on for you these days what else are you working on well i'm a struggling filmmaker and people can go to lucaskendall.com but that is spelled funny thanks parents l-u-k-a-s K-E-N-D-A-L-L.com. You know, like a lot of people, I've got scripts, I've got TV scripts, and I'm in the process of just kind of peddling them. And, you know, you're trying to get agents to pay attention, trying to get financiers to pay attention. And uh, it's a, it's brutal. It's really brutal. But I, I you know, I, it's, it's the, it's a passion. It's a calling. And so that's what I'm doing. But I do, I blog every day. And sometimes I talk about Star Trek and I've told a lot of funny stories. I think they're funny from my past. <laughs> All right, so anybody wants to check them out, we're going to have links in the show notes, so make sure you visit lucaskendall.com for all that fun stuff. Lucas, last thing for today, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? 
I've never felt like I was a part of the Star Trek universe. I always felt like I was a sort of a custodian or a curator for a certain small aspect of it. And it was simply my job to see to it that the public got to experience and access all this wonderful music that was so meaningful to me. But I, I think that um, because I'm on your show, if, I, if we're acknowledging that I am a part of the Star Trek legacy, even in a small way, it's a, it's a great privilege because there's, there's just so much um, dystopian and dispiriting stuff, some of which, most, a lot of which I love. Um, but it's so important that there be Star Trek to be optimistic and to speak to uh, our better selves. Yeah, and whether you like it or not, you are indeed part of the Star Trek universe because you are the person that kept that music alive and a lot of that music that wouldn't have been heard really without you doing it. So, uh, oh, you know, thanks. thank you for really keeping it out there, keeping that spirit of the music alive. And uh, again, I apologize today for not knowing all these music things. I wish I knew That's more, fine. but uh, you've been a wonderful educator and, I, and I'm sure my audience appreciates this lesson too. So thank you so much, Lucas. All right, thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.